Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, Blister's running editor. Our guest today is Pablo Vigil. So for those unfamiliar with that name, Pablo is a pretty legendary figure in the sport of trail and mountain running, and I don't use legendary all that lightly either. In fact, in his prime, Pablo was considered by many to be the greatest mountain runner in the world. He's the only American to have won Sears and all four consecutive times. Sears and all is an iconic race run in the Swiss Alps and a proving ground for mountain runners worldwide, and it always has been and always will be. What's most impressive about Pablo's victories there are that his winning times actually stack up pretty closely to the winning times run today, despite all the advancements in nutrition, gear, training, etc. So I talked to Pablo a few months after his 70th birthday and essentially asked him to take me back to what mountain running was like in the 70s and 80s. We get into what his training looked like back then and why keeping it simple still works. I also get his thoughts on the growing popularity of trail and mountain running in general, where it stands today, and what his role in the sport looks like now that he's retired. This interview was a real pleasure. It turns out that this was Pablo's first podcast appearance, incredibly. His passion for running is something that's palpably felt, and it only takes a few minutes of listening to him talk about it to feel that. Let's get to my conversation with Pablo Hill. Pablo, thanks for joining me today. Well, I'm delighted. Thank you, Matt, for having me, and uh, it's an honor. Yeah, so I wanted to have you on the podcast for a bunch of different reasons, but I think telling your story and sharing your perspective to me is really important considering where the sport of mountain running, ultra running, trail running, whatever you want to call it is uh, right now, considering like how rapidly the sport has grown. Um, I think a lot of people getting into the sport now have no clue about the sport's history, its origins, the basic principles behind it, some of its like founding members. And I'm of the opinion that preserving that stuff like really, really matters. Um, and I don't really know why people aren't aware of its history because it's really fascinating. Um, I just think it needs to be circulated a bit more. Um, it's funny because in, in other sports like basketball and baseball, they do such a good job of making sure that their players and their fans um, know their forebears and their predecessors. And I think trail running should do the same. Um, so you've been running and racing on roads and trails for man more than 50 years uh, at an elite level, uh, no less. And we'll get into your resume a bit later because there's a ton of different questions I want to ask you. Um, but I thought we'd start by going back to the beginning. Um, how did you get into running as a kid? Uh, well, you know, kind of uh, the typical routine where kids are chasing each other and having fun and just a natural thing to do. And uh, uh, I grew up in northern New Mexico in a small village in the Mora Valley. And uh, just, uh, you know, I had three other siblings. So, you know, just normal uh, routine of playing and chasing each other and that sort of thing. And uh, I found early on that I really loved running. And I, it was just a lot of fun. And it's something that obviously I've continued for 56 years. And so it's just been a lot of fun basically just kids play and then it evolved into uh, PE classes later on and then more into a serious uh, note with high school sports, track, cross country, and then uh, running at a university level, professional level, and then so basically that. Yeah, 
Uh, tell me a little bit more about growing up in northern New Mexico. Uh, were you exposed to trails pretty early? Not really. We, uh, I grew up in a small village in northern New Mexico there in the Mora Valley between Las Vegas and Taos. And uh, it, just a lot of dirt roads, some trails, but uh, mainly a mountain community of, uh, at the time, maybe 100, maybe 200 people. And a very, very poor community. Uh, so we grew up dirt poor, so we didn't have a, we, we never had a car, really. So we had to walk everywhere. So it was basic, uh, basic, simple living, you know, uh, growing up in the mountains there in, in northern New Mexico. So uh, Blister, uh, the, the company I work for, reviews a ton of gear, uh, including trail running shoes. And I'm really curious what people wore uh, back when you started running trails, because um, there's been such a huge industry built around that sport now. Um, but I, it, I know it wasn't always that way. Uh, for sure. <laughs> it's uh, when I first it started serious running like in the in the 60s uh right before the boom the running boom in 1966 or 65 thereabouts uh really there was uh a lot of the stuff that we were dabbling with in terms of running uh we were trying you know um just anything uh, street shoes bowling shoes uh running barefooted sometimes but uh there was Nothing per se in terms of uh, like like what you're saying now with uh, the high tech clothes, high tech shoes, nothing like that. Uh, the first first pair of shoes that I ever owned were a pair of Onitsuka Tigers uh, out of San Francisco, and uh, the pair of shoes cost me something like uh, uh, three ninety five, and then there was like a dollar shipping and handling, and they were uh, basic uh, shoes. No lateral motion, no real support, but they were made out of nylon, uh, blue nylon, and they had uh, an all-gum, uh, thin rubber sole, but they worked just fine, you know. We uh, never had any injuries, and then, like you say now, Matt, you know, the the whole uh, running industry, uh, outdoor industry, there are so many choices out there, It's uh, it can be very confusing, <laughs> so... Did you kind of like go with that trend or did you stick to pretty like simple shoes during your time racing? Uh, well, it's kind of like you didn't really have a choice because there were, there were not a whole lot of options uh, early on. Like I say, Onitsuka Tiger, uh, Adidas, and then of course later on uh, Nike uh, came, uh, came on board in the, in the early 70s. But... In the early days of trail running, really, there was there were no real trail running shoes per se. What I was racing in were were all uh, uh, Nike shoes designed for for marathon racing. They were very light, but they had no lateral stability, no uh, no real protection against rocks or anything like that. And so uh, I went for uh, I went for for weight because there really was nothing invented at the time for specifically for um, for mountain running. Although uh, I remember when I first went to uh, Sierras and all, there were some uh, uh, British runners that were that that were racing in these um, fell running shoes, and they were uh, they were like a soccer cleat 
with uh, uh, with special uh, coating on the top that 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 gave them more waterproofing and so on and so on. But really, there was nothing out there on the market at the time. It's crazy to see shoes now that you know have carbon plates and all this kind of stuff, and think back to when yeah you were essentially running in, in racing flats through the mountains. But the performances like are noticeably similar, I think, and that's something we can get into. Uh, you mentioned Sierras and all, and I think that is. Probably, in my mind, what you're best known for, uh, you won the race four consecutive years, which no American has done before. Um, of course, now Killian has won the race nine times. Yeah, um, amazing. Can you, can you tell me? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's something else. Can you tell me a little bit more about the background behind that event? Uh, okay, well, uh, let me just kind of uh, backtrack a little bit. You know... Uh, here in Colorado, we have Pikes Peak Marathon, which is about five or seven years older than Sears and all. And so that being in our backyard here in uh, down the road in Colorado Springs, that was happening uh, before Sears and all. But uh, the thing about Sears and all, I would say is, with all respect to uh, Pikes Peak, is that uh, it was more of an international it has always been more of an international race. And uh, for whatever reason, it has attracted the, the top uh, mountain runners. And maybe because of its proximity being in, in Central Europe, you know, you all the Europeans could go there uh, or have been able to, to get there easier. And, uh, and also there has been this transition from uh, like cross-country skiing, alpine skiing into doing something in the in the summer which is uh kind of typical of most uh european uh uh trail runners in, in, like killian Jorn, uh, jornet is the epitome of that where in the winter time you know he's he's just a badass uh schemo alpine uh skier and then magically in the summertime he transforms into this monster uh a trail mountain runner Whereas in Colorado, we never, uh, it was pretty much, we were running all year round, you know. The person that really uh, I, I, I give credit to uh, in terms of uh, getting me over there and uh, was Chuck Smead, from, originally from California. He was the, the first American to uh, go over to Europe and, and do some serious ass kicking. And he ended up winning Sierras and all was the first American to win Sears and all, I believe, in 1977, uh, maybe 78. And so he put the bug in my ear about going over there. And thanks to Chuck Smead, I went over there. And uh, luckily, I, I, you know, I, I won the first time, second, third, fourth time. But since then, we've also had more Americans going out there, men and women. And, and, uh, Hopefully, we'll, we'll continue getting more and more, uh, more uh, men and women going out there and experiencing the, the European mountain racing. Because anyone who has been to Europe, by comparison to the races here in the United States, uh, we have tough races over here, but nothing super gnarly and technical like they have in Europe. That, to me, is, is more in-depth, more uh, true mountain running uh, sometimes borderline uh, dangerous, of course. So over the years, yeah, we, we've 
We've had other great runners from the U.S. Uh, going over there. We had Megan Lund uh, was the first uh, young lady to win Sears and all. Later on, we had Stevie Kramer. We've had Joe Gray, who uh, was second uh, there. We had Max King, Ricky Gates, uh, and on and on and on. Uh, Megan Kimmel was second one year. So, and and now it's Sears and all is like Hollywood. It is so yeah. big. And uh, it's kind of, uh, but, you know, historically, Sears and all has always been big in the sense that it has attracted the top mountain runners in the world. And uh, uh, being a, a Swiss event, a Swiss put on, do a, a superb job in terms of logistics, uh, how, you know, just staging the race, uh, logistics once again, and making sure that the top men and women continue coming to to Sierras and all. It, it's the kind of race that doesn't really favor anybody. It's, uh, it, it's, it's uh, roughly uh, 21, maybe 22 kilometers, but it it encompasses everything uh uphill downhill technical up technical down uh altitude uh a lot of climbing and then once again you get the 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 best badasses from around the world from the US from Europe from Africa whatever men and women and so it is it is the 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 crossroads and has been in in I believe will continue being the crossroads of the world in that sense of attracting the top men and women in the world. And then once again, the the great race that uh, Sears and all race committee continues uh, uh, doing. And thanks to the original founder, Jean-Claude Pont, who started it in 1976, 1977, I believe. I, I've been meaning to get over there. I think uh, it seems quite the scene with all of the, the helicopters now and all the drone footage. And I know that the race starts with, a I think, a 5,000-foot climb, which will uh, definitely kind of separate uh, fitness pretty quickly. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about how the Europeans do so well because they kind of have this, like, seasonal approach to training where they'll run really hard in the summers and then put on the skis in the winter. Um, how did you train for Sierra Zanal uh, living in America? Well, um, uh, let me just kind of say something about the Europeans. Uh, you know, it, uh, it's pretty, it's a real clever way of training, I think, uh, the European model in the sense that once again in the wintertime, they are badass uh uh, alpine uh, uh, skiers, so they're they're able to really uh, rev up their max VO2 without pounding the hell out of their soft tissue and, and and you know whatever the way most Americans have done in the past. I was one of those where I ran all year round, uh, as opposed to like maybe Killian. Okay, he was up there super fit in the winter time, but he was not beating his his uh, soft tissue and, and so on and so on with all the running that we were doing over here. So I, I, um, I was running all year round. So when I say I've been running uh, f uh, over 50 years, uh, most of that time was, was running 
I was not doing skiing or alpine skiing in the in the winter time. It was it was running uh, cross country in the fall, uh, indoor track for the winter, uh, spring track uh, in the spring, of course, and then road racing, some mountain running, some trail running in the summer. Uh, but so it, it was kind of uh, doing the whole the whole spectrum of of running. It was not just specialized in uh, trail mountain running. Uh, and I'm proud to say that that, that I, I, I had great experiences running cross-country in high school, uh, indoor track, cross-country and indoor track at uh, Adams State University in Alamosa, spring track, uh, and then uh, once again, uh, road racing, marathon racing, ultra racing, uh, trail racing, mountain racing in the summer. So it was it was a combination of a lot of distances, anywhere from 800 meters to to uh, an ultra marathon of 100 miles. So it's kind of, there was that that uh, range of, uh, of all types of running. It wasn't just specializing in trail mountain running, uh, which like like today we have Great mountain runners and trail runners, but that's all they do. You know, they don't they don't do any. Uh, which I, I I really believe that working on on uh, your speed at, by doing intervals or racing uh, periodically five ten kilometers half marathon on the road, uh, getting on the track, whatever whatever, will make you a better mountain runner. Uh, when I uh, was winning Sears and all and had my best years as a mountain runner, I was living in Alamosa, Colorado. Alamosa, Colorado is as flat as a tortilla, but it's 7,544 feet. And so uh, I was doing quality intervals uh, on the track or, or Fartlek on the road. But twice a week, I would go up up to the to the mountains and I would do quality uphill running, uh, rock and roll running, uh, uh, super high altitude running, technical running. So I combined it all. I wasn't just, and then, and during that time, I also I was running like 215 in the marathon, sub 29 for 10,000 on the track, sub 14 for five. So I, I, when I went to Europe, uh, uh, you know, I was coming in with a lot of background other than just trail mountain running, you know. Did you have uh, coaches at that time? Uh, at the time, I was I was coaching myself, but but I've had some wonderful, wonderful uh, coaches and mentors in my lifetime. Uh, uh, Doctor Joe Veal, no relation, was my my uh, coach at Adams State University, and he's a uh, I learned I owe. Uh, Pretty much all my running success to to Dr. Joe Vigil, and uh, who, by the way, I, I still keep in touch. He's 92 years old, and then I've also uh, been very blessed uh, with hooking up with some wonderful mentors like Frank Shorter, who won the gold medal in the in the Munich Olympics in '72, uh, Gary Bjorklund, Rick Rojas, uh, and, and then you know. So I've always. Uh, hooked up or was able to to uh, find quality people to 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 train with uh, and I think that's really important that you have some kind of a synergy 
especially for your intervals and maybe your long run. And the rest of the time, you can just pretty much train on your own, you know. But the intervals, if you have somebody to, to push you on the intervals and maybe have somebody to do your long run with, like uh, two to four hours for mountain running, whatever, every seven to ten days, then that, that really helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I should also mention that uh, you said your marathon uh, PR is uh, two fifteen, which you set uh, the year after running Sierras and all. So that's like that's pretty incredible to to have those results um, kind of at the same time. I think a lot of people struggle with like you know road speed translating to trail speed and vice versa. But I think you're you're a testament to that recipe, man. I uh, I was looking back at some of your results and the 80s were a good decade for you. You know, you had uh, the wins at Sierra Zanal and then you uh, competed in three U.S. Olympic marathon trials in 80, 84, and 88. What was that like? Well, uh, you know, when you get up to, uh, to the final uh, of uh, the Olympic trials, you know, you're trying to make the Olympic team. It's another, it's a whole another level. You know, you're, everybody's fit, everybody, you can't, there's no place to hide. It, it, it just comes down to who is on that day. And, and so I never ran well at the Olympic trials, you know. But, uh, of course, I qualified three times and, and this and that. Uh, but. It's a whole nother level. You know, when you get to the Olympic trials, it is so serious. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of preparation. And you, you have to, you have to be, everything has to work for you. Uh, in the sense of, uh, you can't come in being tired. You can't come in being sick. Uh, and then there's always the element of surprise and the element of luck and so on and so on. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I I always had a good time when I, whenever I raced. But you know, it, that's sport. Sometimes you're going to run exceptionally well, and other times you're going to walk away wondering what the hell happened. You know, because you went in well prepared, and things just did not go your way. Uh, I wanted to also say that uh, so '79 when I first went to uh, to uh, Sears and all that also. Uh, Probably one of the, the races that I am um, most proud of was having made the World Cross Country Team in 1978. Having made the World Cross in 78 and then uh, and, and raced at the, the World Championships in Glasgow, Scotland. And then the next year uh, going to, uh, to Sears and all with Chuck Smead and then having success there. And, and that kind of started the ball rolling for me in terms of, of uh, an, an international stage was the world cross country meet and then of course Sears and all and then everything after that. So anyway. Yeah, I think it, let's uh, go back to Sears and all because I am like infinitely fascinated about that event and what it was like to run it uh, in the 70s and 80s. What did you guys do for nutrition back then? Because like the distance is long enough to where you you know, you'd expect to need some kind of fuel. Uh, I know uh, the men's times are oftentimes around like 2.30, 2.40, quite enough running to bonk. So what were people eating like like raisins or, you know, anything that they could, that they could get their hands on? Yeah, well, uh, 
That's a great question because obviously with the technology of you know the 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 lack of technology back in the in the seventies, uh, the shoes were were very Spartan. So was the fuel, you know, like gels were not invented then. There was no high tech uh, Sunto or Polar watches. I always wore my little Casio, and that was kind of my high tech thing. And and uh, I just kind of kept track of certain points during the race where I was at. But but better yet, I I, I kept track of you know the rest of the competition. But there was nothing. In, they did provide raisins. They provided chocolate. Some of the villages that you you pass through uh, in Switzerland during at Sears and all that at the time they even provided little shots of wine and uh i remember uh you know i never ate anything the only thing that i ever that i ever remember uh drinking was just water they did provide uh this swiss drink called Ravella, which tasted horrible it was like a, like a imitation uh pepsi or coke milk product from switzerland and they provided that but uh, you know, we didn't get all hung up about drinking a whole lot or or really eating anything. I never ate anything during series and all, and I rarely drank drank uh, much uh, water. Or once again, you know, there were no gel gels were not invented, so it was very basic running. Uh, but you 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 said earlier on that they televised uh, series and all by helicopter. They still do, but that was really surprising that looking back in 1979, they televised, even back then they were televising Sears and all by helicopter. And, and uh, they had the Swiss Army along the way blowing whistles to, to uh, warn uh, the slower runners on, on the, the tourists that started before us that uh, a runner was coming up on him, so they had to jump off the trail and this and that. Uh, but also, I might I might add that Sears and all race course uh, back then to now is the same distance. But the big but of it is that large sections of the original Sears and all Zinal course have been cleared of rocks in terms of rocks sticking up and this and that so back in the 70s Sears and all was a badass gnarly course and uh and uh I've had discussions with several American runners about this and they say well you know what does it matter it was the same distance it was the same distance but the analogy I like to give is you know back in the 60s they were pretty much all dirt tracks, or they would put this like scoria, this crushed volcanic rock on top of the of the dirt. Allegedly, it was supposed to be a better surface till you tripped and fell on your face on that <laughs> scoria, and it got embedded in your in your in your in your head or your knees or wherever. So uh, back to this analogy. So a lot of these dirt tracks later on, they were. Uh, you know, the tartan was put over them, and every single record was broken on that that course as soon as that that happened. So Sears and all, it's the same distance, but it's a hell of a lot quicker than what it was by having eliminated uh, stretches of a lot of rock 
to accommodate now the mountain bikers on the course and, and all that stuff, uh, which is okay because, uh, you know, that's, it is what it is. But uh, back then it was extra gnarly with the, with, the, with the rocks and the scree that they did not clear up in the, in the higher part of the, uh, of the course. Anyway. Yeah, no, it's it's cool to see um, courses change like that over time, just through like erosion um, and maintenance like that. I think it uh, it makes you again really appreciate um, some of the times that that folks put up twenty, thirty, forty years ago. Which is something else I wanted to talk about. I was uh, looking at some of the course record times, and Killian, um, I think, said it one or two years ago in. Uh, 225 at Sierra's and all. Um, and your fastest time was 233 and change, which, you know, is is right up there. I think on, on any given year, um, that would be at least in the top five for men. Does that like surprise you at all that your time is like, like stands up uh, still? Well, yeah, kind of in a way. I, I don't, I mean, the fact that uh, the time that Killian and, uh, uh, other runners have run since then. These are amazing times. And uh, I've been there during the every time watching the runners helping out with the logistics of the race and seeing the race unfold. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I guess the, you know, running is running. And, and you gotta, you gotta come in uh, loaded for bear. You gotta be super fit coming into Sears and all. You may not have the the best shoes, the best technology, this and that, but the bottom line is, if if you are an elite runner, uh, man or woman, you are, you have to come in fit, and if you have if you can get a little uh, edge on somebody over super light uh, shoes or a special drink or a spe spe special gel during uh, during the course of the event. Uh, so be it. But the bottom line is, you 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 just gotta go in there. Running is running, you know, and you gotta you gotta come in well prepared uh, for for all kinds of terrain at Sears and all. Because once again, it favors nobody. It's a Goldilocks standard, you know. It favors nobody. It's not too short, not too long, not you know. You gotta be good at slamming the gears in in going up going down and and then there's always the element of luck so am i surprised that uh yeah i'm a little bit surprised but you know uh it was what it was at the time it uh we learned a lot we had a, a hell of a lot of fun and it was uh it was kind of the the beginning of the of uh, this whole rumble and movement of, of mountain running and, and I'm uh, uh, really uh, proud that I was a that I was a piece of that and thanks to people like uh, you know once again Chuck Smead but we also had some other great runners happening over here uh, in this country we had uh, 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 Steve Gauchipin from Hemis Pueblo down in New Mexico who was badass mountain runner one Pikes Peak six consecutive times? We had Rick Trujillo, who really was the pioneer of mountain running here in Colorado, and uh, so we had people like that, uh, Al Walkie, and, and so on and so on. But but the 
thing was that a lot of these runners uh, never really got over to Europe and experienced that really international, uh, with all respect to them, that really international ass-kicking feel of, of, you know, of a world stage, you know. And, uh, and I think they would have run well had they gone over there. Uh, but, and then, of course, uh, throughout the years, we've had people like Ricardo Mejia, Hernandez, Ricardo Mejia, who probably is the closest thing to Killian Jornet in terms of, of what he did with uh, winning Zagama, Sears and all, Pikes Peak, and this and that. And then, of course, now there's a whole generation of of, of, of up-and-coming runners. Janelle Lynx is just a badass young lady. She's uh, got a lot of talent, very hardworking. Uh, she's had uh, good success in, in a very short amount of, of, uh, of time, and I think she will continue improving. The sport is out of control in a sense, but it's kind of been latent here in the United States by comparison to Europe. But it continues, like I collaborate with runners in Mexico, uh, Ricardo Mejia, and in Mexico, it is like wildfire, and it is spreading more and more and more down to, uh, to, into Patagonia and on and on and on. So worldwide, it's just out of control, you know? Yeah, I'd, I'd, uh, in China, too. Exactly. Um, it's really taking off over there. And what? Yeah, they've got some gnarly trails. Amen. And so... Uh, the thing that I am blown away with is is the the participation and the success, especially that women have had in mountain running. It, it's like, oh man, just these women are fit, and they're uh, they're doing some amazing stuff uh, on the world stage in Mexico, in this country, and, and of course all all around the world, and. Uh, it's it's wonderful having seen the the genesis of the sport uh and how it's grown with the technology how it's grown with uh with uh the fueling of of you know what fuels to take uh it's just this huge industry that uh <laughs> and i think back and i say you know running used to be so simple and 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 a hell of a lot of fun. It still is. Uh, I just turned 70, and I love to run still. But now it's like people have to make all of these choices about, let me see, what am I going to wear? What's what's a la mode? What about this carbon, uh, carbon uh, fiber shoes and this and that and that and this? It's like I would tell people, you know what? Focus on your fitness. Get super badass fit. And keep it simple. Uh, easier said than done, I know. But, you know, a lot of this stuff, technology and shoes and this and that, it's wonderful. But but, but the bottom line is just, just get fit. Be ready to go. Get your head screwed on straight. Your, you know, and, and then just pick out a few simple items and, and don't worry about what everybody else is doing and what training they're doing and this and that, you know? Who cares? Yeah, it, that takes a lot of restraint, for sure, as someone that has an entire closet of shoes. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. And then yeah. it's not just shoes, you know? Now it's got to be, what? how do I fuel up? Uh, 
what uh, what uh, kind of diet should I, should I be on? Personal trainers. And, and of course, now everybody is an expert. You know, there are all these experts out there. But but I would say, you know, just uh, look, you know, s search out these uh, these old dinosaurs and pick their brains and talk to them. And uh, th there are some good young coaches out there, of course. But uh, be very careful who you listen to and this and that and, and kind of just simplify it. Kind of like the Kenyans and the Ethiopians and the Japanese. They kind of keep it simple. And, and when they show up, they are ready to do some serious ass kicking. And it's not about this yeah. rah, 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 this and that and all that, you know. Uh, look at me, I'm on Facebook, and I'm, I'm on Insta, this and that. It's kind of, they just kind of keep it simple. Yeah. I think uh, Killian also uh, keeps it pretty simple. And that's actually um, how I first learned about you uh, was watching one of the episodes of Killian's Quest, the the series that Solomon put on um, probably around like 2015. There's a, a great episode of, of you two. And I'm, I'm curious about how you got linked up with Killian and what your relationship with him looks like. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to say about Killian is that... Uh, I have a lot of respect for Killian, what he's done in the world of alpine skiing. And uh, I will always say about Killian that he is, he is a wonderful, wonderful person. And I know his family. I, uh, his father has stayed with me in here at my home in Colorado uh, for over a month. We've traveled down into New Mexico. We've traveled around the world. I spent time with his mother at where she was teaching in La Sardania in Catalonia. I know his sister and, and uh, so I have great respect for Killian and his parents and his sister. I know the uncles and on and on. So how did I meet Killian? Basically I, I you know throughout the years I've been helping out with Sears and all in terms of um, recruiting trying to recruit the top mountain runners, men and women, and other athletes from around the world in Mexico and uh, Africa, wherever, you know, people uh, contact me and they, they want advice and this and that. For me, it's all about giving back to the sport. Uh, I don't do any of this for, it's all pro bono. I love working with young people. Uh, I love uh, hopefully I can give them some uh, sound advice about training, but not only training, advice on the importance of a good education, the importance of being a good person and uh, being uh, cultured and picking up a second, third language and so on and so on. So I met Killian, going back to the Killian story, I met him at Sears and All. I don't know, many years ago I met him. He had once Sears and All. And, and basically I just, he was a very shy uh, young man, and I just went up there and just started talk to, talking to him, you know, and just said, congratulations, you know, wow, I was very impressed with your running, and we, uh, he didn't know me from, we didn't know each other, but, and then after that, uh, we stayed in touch, and then all of a sudden, one day, you know, he wants me to be part of his uh, Killian's Quest, and I was like, whoa, this guy could be my grandson, and he wants to kind of pay homage to me with his with his Killian's Quest. And I said, yeah, sure, whatever I can do, you know, uh, what do I have to do? And he said, well, we'll be flying out to Colorado and and uh, we'd like to stay with you. Uh, my cameraman 
Seb Sebastian Montage Roset came and Killian came, and then uh, that's how we kind of got the ball rolling with Killian. And then of course now Killian's such a such a superstar, and I he's uh, worked hard for everything he he deserves it all. And and of course now he's you know he has a wife and he has uh, his family, two kids I believe, and. and uh, and that's what it's all about, you know. It's kind of you—you you kind of reinvent yourself, and you you morph, remorph, and you you uh, you seek other uh, goals and other dreams, you know. And that's where Killian is right now. Yeah, I guess since then he started his own company, uh, Normal or Abnormal. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, more power to him, you know that. Uh, He's inspired a lot of people, and I'm lucky that I was able to uh, to spend time with him uh, doing this, uh, uh, keeping the passion alive on Killian's Quest and, and filming and, and you know, kind of like what I'm doing here with you, you know, Matt, and, and you know, uh, working with some other recent runners like uh, Kanan Vallejos and, and uh, Janelle Lynx also and on and on. It's just, it's all about giving back and working with the future and keeping the passion alive and, 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 and keeping it going, you know? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think um, through people like you and through people like Killian, uh, the sport just continues to survive. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy uh, you've shared so much about ultra running history and your personal story with me. Before we get out of here, I stumbled across a quote from you uh -oh. that I found really interesting. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it to you and, and uh, ask you a question about it. Okay. So you said, as a runner or even as a human being, one of the hardest things to accept is the fact that a lot of the times people believe in you more than you believe in yourself. It's a very abstract thing, but to believe in oneself is one of the hardest things that I've struggled with. So I'm wondering if you still struggle with that. Uh, no, not, not, uh, not as much as, as I have growing up. I think a lot of that had to do with, uh, growing up, uh, in a broken home in northern New Mexico, uh, dirt poor, both parents being illiterate and parent, uh, grandparents being illiter illiterate, growing up with poverty, uh, struggling to learn English, Spanish is my first language. And just uh, having the confidence to to uh, to move forward, and also as a child, I experienced a lot of different trauma, and uh, I struggled in school for many many years. And then, uh, thanks to running and having success in running in high school, especially after I won the state cross country meet in my senior year in 1970. It kind of, it kind of, I started, uh, once again, uh, you know, more people had faith in me than what I had in myself. And so I started, started uh, accepting the fact that, that, you know what, maybe I, I need to work on my self-esteem more because I have very low self-esteem. I struggled academically. I struggled socially. And it's taken a lot of uh, a lot of years with a lot of wonderful people in my life, uh, coaches, teachers, friends, of course, uh, uh, my family, and especially our mother. And uh, so it's it it takes a village or two to to raise 
uh, to raise a runner, to raise a, a teacher, whatever. Also, I'd like to say that besides uh, running, I, I like to uh, promote the fact that being a good person, being educated, ed uh, education, reading, whatever, uh, a technical school or university, whatever you decide to do, that that is, that is uh, imperative to, uh, to being successful in, in, in the real world. And, and, uh, and having a passion for something. I don't care if it's uh, a writer or, or a dancer or, or a singer, whatever it might be, but having passion for, for something and following your, your dreams and, and, and you never know where it's going to take you, you know? I mean, it's like I shake my head and I go, holy cow, my running got me a, a great education, uh, got me a master's, I, I'm a retired teacher, and uh, I have a wonderful family, and the thing that I'm most proud of are my children and grandchildren. And uh, running was just one of those vehicles that that was the carrot that 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 helped me travel around the world. And the thing is, you know, I'm still uh, I, I travel all over the world, uh, and I work with some wonderful, wonderful young people, rock climbers, uh, and runners and, and whatever it may be and, and I'm very lucky that that I still have my my thumb on the pulse you know and I'm, I'm still able to see the evolution of this madness you know called running mountain running whatever you know cool well I think that is a great note to end on uh, Pablo thanks for for sitting down to, to chat with me it was it was awesome thank you Matt and uh, best of luck to all the runners out there with your training and uh Hopefully, we'll run into each other somewhere on the planet. Okay, adios. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I just want to say thanks to Pablo for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>